This is an ABC podcast. I've been calling his name James! every 30 seconds now for 12 hours. I went over to the command station. I had a chat with the superintendent and I said, this has gone on long enough now. We need to find him. Like, why, why can't you find him? He's just disappeared off the face of the earth. There are two murder detectives coming up from Sydney and they'll be here mid-afternoon. When the cadaver dogs turned up, that's when I thought things are getting pretty serious, that we might not find him alive. I'm Elizabeth Coolass. Welcome to Days Like These. That's Marisa and Peter Skillen. And one Easter, a couple of years ago, they packed up their kids and set off on a road trip that started like any other. But consider this a content warning, because instead of a peaceful long weekend of camping, the family are dropped into a living nightmare when one of the kids slips away and they're left desperately scrambling to find him before it's too late. It was the Easter long weekend and we'd been invited by some friends to join them in camping in a fairly remote area of New South Wales. It was our first camping trip away with the family, so as my husband and our three children. The twins are three years old and Hugo's five. James and Sam are twins. Uh, Sam's really laid back. Nothing seems to ruffle his feathers. James is much more of an actor, a lot more vocal. Uh, yeah, they're very different, but both gorgeous. We were so excited. And when we got there, we set up camp and it was going to be a great Easter long weekend. Where we were, it was fairly flat and cleared, but then all around the campsite area it was dense bush. Everybody knew each other, all the kids were running around freely, and I thought they were safe there, I felt contained. So it was fenced off to the north and to the west, and it looked safe. Um, what we didn't appreciate at the time was that there were a hundred acres spread out to the east and the south of us. It was day two and we'd spent one night at the campsite. I noticed the kids were playing with a ball and kicking it around and James came up to me and said he was thirsty so we went into the camp kitchen and I got him a drink. Then I, I thought he'd turned around and gone back to all, where all the other kids were and I walked off back to our tent. And then I looked over at the kids and I thought, James isn't there. And so I said to my husband, Peter, I said, have you seen James? I think it was about five o'clock we noticed that uh, James wasn't around. We'd only seen him 10, maybe 15 minutes before, but we couldn't find him. We were slightly concerned at this stage and everyone started to have a look around and went, and looked in all the tents and nobody could see him. 
and then I started to panic a little bit. James wasn't one to disappear. In fact, during the, the, the previous hour or so that they'd been playing, he was regularly coming back to the tent. And I think it was that, that was one of the reasons that, that we started to miss him, because he hadn't come back to the tent. We had to call it at about five o'clock when it was starting to get dark that we couldn't find him, so we should um, call the police. And I, I stupidly, I remember I called initially, and of course the first thing he asked is, where are you? And I didn't know. I hadn't thought it through. I didn't, we're, we're camping somewhere. After the police arrived, I was told pretty much to to stay back and not, not to go looking because they didn't want me to get lost. They knew that I was, you know, really, really upset. I said to Sam, because I just had this thought in my head of, you know, is there anything about the twin intuition. And I thought, I'm just gonna ask Sam what he thinks, you know, is, is James okay? And so I went over to him and I said, you know, Sam, do you think James is okay? And he said, he's fine, mum. He's fine, he's just gone to look for the Gruffalo. I just, I wasn't sure, but it did actually give me a lot of comfort to hear that Sam actually thought he was okay. And I went with that, I held on to that as much as I possibly could. I'd go away from the camp and sometimes quite a distance and then get the feeling that James was actually back at the back at the camp and, and it was all okay. And, and of course I'd get back and he wasn't. The police set it up so they did a section at a time and they all lined up a metre apart and they were walking through the bush um, calling out his name. Would have been around about six o'clock. That's when we realised that there were dams on the property. I was just totally freaking out because how many times have you heard of children going missing in the bush and especially three-year-olds um, and being found in the dam. Volunteers started turning up and by about eight o'clock at night, there was a hundred people in the campsite. We found abandoned houses, we found um, sheds, and we went through all of them and we looked under them and we just looked everywhere. After they still hadn't found him, after the first helicopter came, they called in another helicopter which had the infrared. Around about 11 o'clock I thought I just I need to get the other two into bed to sleep and then I'll keep looking but the police told me not to go anywhere so I was in limbo. All I could do was sit and, and wait. started to get colder and people were increasingly coming back to the kitchen to get warm because there was a log fire there. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, I'm cold too, but James has just got a T-shirt and a pair of shorts on and he's going to be very cold. The knot inside of us just got increasingly tight and it was just a downward trajectory. Um, 
that built during the night when we, we just couldn't figure out where he was. I stayed awake till about three o'clock in the morning and then I went and just lay down with the other two kids and gave them a cuddle because I just really needed to have a cuddle from them. And then the police called off the search at about four o'clock in the morning and by this stage I'd drifted off to sleep. At about six o'clock in the morning we woke up and there was still no sign of him. All I could hear was James, James, James in all different directions. Dawn started to break. I got in the car then because I could see for the first time. I drove and drove, even though I was in a four-wheel drive, I got to a point where I just couldn't go any further. So I started walking around, constantly calling his name. James! I've been calling his name every 30 seconds now for 12 hours. Still nothing, just nothing, and it's the nothingness. Now is a long way from camp, and just really cannot have walked this far. More volunteers were turning up all the time. There were over, well over 100 people, 150 people, by about seven o'clock in the morning. And then four things happened in succession, which certainly dampened our spirits even further. And the, and the first of those were that uh, dogs arrived on site and we thought they were um, tracker dogs, that they would sniff trails and things. They're actually cadaver dogs. When the cadaver dogs turned up, that's when I thought things are getting pretty serious, that we might not find him alive. The second thing that happened was a number of police divers uh, arrived to search the dams. The third thing that happened was that the police introduced us to a chaplain. And came over to ask if I wanted to chat and I said no because that was just getting too real then that something bad might have happened to him. And then the fourth thing that happened was the police came over and said, don't be worried, but there are two murder detectives coming up from Sydney and they'll be here mid-afternoon. Um, so that was just after nine o'clock. Someone said that there were wild dogs in the bush. I pretty much had a meltdown when I heard that. So I thought, what if, what if he'd been eaten by an animal? About 10 o'clock in the morning, I said enough of this. So I went over to the command station and I walked in and they said, no, 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 you can't come in here. 
I had a chat with the superintendent and I said, this has gone on long enough now. We need to find him. Like, why, why can't you find him? There are nearly 200 people here by this stage. There are helicopters. Why can't we find him? He's just disappeared off the face of the earth. So for the next three hours, we have the, the constant noise of helicopters over us. And that is one lasting memory. Whenever I hear a helicopter close by, I get shudders. Um, because that was the defining sound. I, I definitely got the feeling at around quarter to 11, 11 o'clock that they were scratching their heads a bit, that they'd scoured the 100 acres. There's only two things that can have happened. He's either walked outside that area, which the police said was unlikely, or somebody's taken him. The police came and had a chat to us in the morning and asked me if there was anybody in the camp that I didn't know as well as I thought I knew. You know, is there anyone that might have taken James or done something bad to him? And, you know, my immediate response was no, absolutely not. There was nobody in this campsite who could have done anything bad to my little boy. But then after he said that, you second guess everything. You, 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 your mind goes to places where you don't want it to go. So the policeman, who was basically our source of information on what was happening and what was going next, was a, was a guy called Dan. And I had a mantra in my head of Dan coming over and saying, we found James, he's okay. And I said that over and over again. And, and Marisa would ask, what are we gonna do? We're gonna find James, is what we're gonna do. All kinds of thoughts go through your head. And I think then as now, we've we, we just formed a roadblock and that's a road we don't wanna go down. That's a thought process that we don't wanna have. And that's an area we don't wanna visit. We will find James and he'll be okay. Quarter past 11, after all, after these four successive blows, Dan came over in his white overalls. I couldn't read his face. I couldn't read what he was wanting to talk to us about. He said, we've found James. And then I looked at him and I said, is he alive? <laughs> we've found James, he's fine. Sorry. And he said, well, um, some members of the public have found him and he's six kilometres away. And we're like, how did he get six kilometres away? But he's okay, he's safe, he's well. And, and that was the best news in the whole world. Dan clearly hadn't told anybody else. So all they saw is Dan coming over, telling us they'd found James, and Mary Sue and I collapsed on the ground in a heap of tears. So the people looking on feared the worst. 
And then the police made an announcement. There was an enormous cheer. Tonight, their very own Easter blessing. After a night in the bush, three-year-old James Skillen safely back in his family's arms. All the volunteers and all the media that were there, everyone started clapping and, and cheering. Everybody on site and all our friends. It was pretty amazing. There was a group who had come up from Sydney and were four-wheel driving and they'd run out of supplies. They went into Safala and fortuitously they were in the shop at Bangor on 10 o'clock and they saw on the ABC News that a child had gone missing near Safala. These two guys went back to their campsite and said, look, this child's missing. They had four four-wheel drives with them and they split into groups and they went their separate ways. And one of the groups had been driving for a while. One of the ladies in the car needed to go to the toilet. So she got out of the car, went over a ridge and saw James. James was wearing a little yellow bumblebee backpack. Inside the backpack he had a packet of pencils and another pair of shoes. So somewhere on his journey he's lost a shoe and decided, well, that's okay because I've got another pair in my bag. So he had odd shoes on when we found him. The way was agonisingly long. It just seemed to go on forever and ever. We had no idea which direction the helicopter was coming in, so we were looking everywhere for it. And then eventually we heard it. And it landed in this. James sat on the knee of one of the police crew, looking out the window. And he just looked so little. He was so tiny and I thought, I can't believe what you've just been through. For James to go missing for 20 hours was just unthinkable. This huge policeman brought this tiny little child just uh, it. It was just wonderful. I said, James, what, what happened? And he said, oh, I got lost, Mum, but I tried to get on a kangaroo to get the kangaroo to take me home. I actually laughed. I laughed and I cried at the same time when I heard that. Did you miss me? Yes! He didn't have any food or lunch. When Sam and James were reunited, Sam asked him about the gruffalo. He was looking for the gruffalo and he didn't find it. And he was most indignant because, of course, three-year-olds don't believe in gruffalo, so... No, I wasn't looking up the gruffalo. What a ridiculous thing to suggest. I did not go looking for the Gruffalo. We suspected it. Thanks to the Skillen family for sharing the story of their ordeal. James and Sam will go into grade two at school this year. This episode was reported by the wonderful Alex Lolbach. a story that you want us to hear please share it with us we would absolutely love that you can email us days like these at abc.net.au 
And if you're enjoying the show, please consider supporting us by leaving a rating or review in your podcast app of choice or spreading the word far and wide on Twitter and Facebook. Next time on Days Like These, the story of how two pioneering surfers, Pauline Menser and Jodie Cooper, took on sexism. It was a man's place out there, like... They just didn't want women out there. And massive swells. In one sense in your mind, you're thinking, holy, holy, holy fuck. And in the process, changed the world of surfing forever. I just thought it was a moral injustice and I just couldn't walk the planet knowing that I hadn't done my bit to make a difference. Days Like These is hosted by me, Elizabeth Coolass. Our lead reporter is Padabud. Our season two reporting team includes Sam Wicks, James Viver and Belinda Lopez. Our researcher is Tamar Cranswick and our digital team includes Andrew Davies and Michael Delaney. Sound design on this episode by Simon Branthwaite with thanks to Timothy Nicastri and Stephen Tilly. The supervising producer for this episode was Tom Wright and our brilliant executive producers are Ian Walker and Rachel Fountain. Our theme song is Yeah Nah by the Gooch Palms, courtesy of Ratbag Records and BMG. Extra music by Russell Stapleton. See you next time. Hey, it's Elizabeth here. It's now a year or so since our world was turned upside down by this pandemic. And most of us have spent this last year missing something. A someone, a feeling, maybe a habit that you used to have. We want to hear from you about what or who you have been longing for. After months of lockdown in Melbourne, living, working, exercising in the same four walls of my apartment, I found myself longing for a haircut. Before COVID, I would stretch my appointments out for as long as I possibly could. I was just too busy. Other things demanded my attention. But since restrictions have eased, I am a new hair person. I now make my next hair appointment right after I'm done getting my hair cut, like as I am exiting the salon. I will never take that simple act of getting a trim or a head massage for granted again. So we want to hear from you. What are you longing for? There's no longing off limits here. We want to hear them all. Please get in touch. Send us an email or even better, record a voice memo on your phone and send it across. We're at days like these at abc.net.au. We can't wait to hear from you.